You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week, we continue our series on Ukraine with a discussion of satellites and the role they have played in wars like Ukraine. But before we do that, we have a few news updates. First, and perhaps most importantly this week, the Wagner militia accused of sledgehammer murders of human beings in Syria and Africa and other atrocities in the worst possible sense of that term has finally been designated as what they are, which is a transnational criminal organization. That designation comes from Treasury. That forbids anyone from doing business with them or exchanging funds across the globe. Now, you may be thinking that Wagner founder Yevgeny Prigozhin and various of his forever sprouting shell companies have already been designated, but this designation calls out the Wagner's criminal torture and war crimes, and it sets the stage for possible later action by entities like the World Court. Separately, the European Council, which includes 27 national leaders in Europe, is looking into ways that seized Russian assets can be used to reconstruct Ukraine. And there are calls for G7 nations to join suit, and such a broad alliance would, of course, include the United States. Germany's leader, Olaf Scholz, who has previously resisted calls by NATO allies to allow for leopard tanks to be sent to defend Ukraine, has agreed to free the leopards, meaning the tanks. At the same time, the United States, which has also some strategic tanks, has freed those up for use in Ukraine. This is a seismic shift in the conflict. Now, Germany's shift is especially significant because you might remember from our earlier podcast that Germany had, in a good faith effort, rendered itself dependent upon liquid natural gas and oil from Russia when it decommissioned its nuclear power plants and agreed to the Nord Stream's one and two pipelines. This is a sea change and a shift for the German economy that has changed everything over the last 30 years. Now, Norway has also arrested a Brazilian researcher on suspicion of spying for Russia after Norway learned that he had built up a wealth of information on the defenses in the north of Norway, which you may remember faces the Russian border. That's another reason why the admission of both Finland and Sweden into NATO would be a significant strategic shift because they too point in that direction and give some strategic buffer against Russia from the north. And China has taken golden shares, surprise, of Alibaba and Tencent, which is their Amazon and Microsoft, respectively. This will surprise no one who works in the CFIUS space. And it's one of the things that's always concerned Americans when it comes to Chinese companies. Perhaps that whole capitalism experiment has sort of had its run in China. And in case you had not heard in older news, Lukoil chair, Lukoil being the big Russian oil company, whose name is Ravil Paganov, who had criticized Russia's invasion of Ukraine, has died after falling out of the hospital window in Russia, meeting the same fate, which is either a fall out of the window, a fall down steps, or some bad tea that so many other opponents of the Kremlin have over the years. So my advice, keep those hospital beds and dissidents away from the windows away from the tops of the steps, and away from autocracies that fear other opinions, and back to the cast. Tonight, my guest is Dr. Brian Whedon of the Secure World Foundation. Dr. Brian Whedon is the Director of Planning for Secure World, and he has nearly two decades of professional experience in space operations and policy. He directs strategic planning for future year projects. I like that because that means he's a futurist, and we all love a futurist. 
In order to meet the foundation's goals and objectives, he conducts research on space debris, global space situational awareness, space traffic management, space assets, space governance. That's a lot. He also organizes national and international workshops to increase awareness and facilitate dialogue on space security. There's a lot more to say about him. He's also a member of the Advisory Committee on Commercial Remote Sensing and the NOAA and the Executive Director of the Consortium for Execution of Rendezvous and Servicing Operations. Now, we're going to explain all that to those of you who don't know. Brian, I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Well, let's talk about satellites. First of all, there are a lot of them up there. So give us a little history of how they've become a point of international pride, national security and so forth, and global communications. And take us back, if you would, to those lovely romantic times, the salad days, light and airy, the 1950s. No, no and, it's, and it's a good point because the story does start back then. You know, I think a lot of people remember, particularly the 1960s with the space race and NASA and the Apollo program. And there was a lot of focus on the peaceful and, and scientific exploration space. But all along, there was significant national security interest and expenditure and focus on space. In fact, some of the original impetus for the United States to have a space program was the desire to collect intelligence from satellites to offset the growing vulnerability of aircraft-based intelligence, we all remember with the Gary Power shoot down. So from the very beginning of the space age, militaries in the U.S. and Soviet Union and national security infrastructure were using satellites for intelligence and then in future decades for things like satellite communications and remote sensing and navigation and all sorts of other services. Of course, when any new technology comes along and has benefits, people think about how do I do something about that? And so there were discussions and thoughts on how to attack, deny, degrade, destroy satellites and space capabilities from the very beginning of the space age when we talked about using them. In fact, the very first anti-satellite test was conducted by the United States in the late 1950s. And both the U.S. and Soviet Union conducted something on the order of 50 anti-satellite tests between 1959 and the mid-1990s when the Soviet Union collapsed. So from the very beginning, there was this concern about how we'd use space in a conflict, its value for military, and potentially having capabilities to destroy, deny, degrade satellite capabilities of an adversary. Okay, well, how would we use space? I've seen all the movies, and it's frightening, but every wonderful Star Wars movie, you know, you begin to think about these things. I'm hoping it's fueling the imagination of generations of scientists to come. So you talked a little bit about missile tests, anti-missile tests. Let's break that down a little bit. There was a missile intercept that took place in the 1950s. And then in 1991, Russia sort of collapsed. And then you had the introduction of some, I'll call them nations rising. How did this sort of topography of satellite control change between the 1950s and 2019? Yeah, no, it's a a great question. So, you know, as I mentioned, during the Cold War, space was part of this competition, both militarily and sort of public scientifically between the U.S. and Soviet Union. Both sides developed anti-satellite weapons and other capabilities. Both sides tested them although they were never used in an armed conflict against each other. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed in the mid-1990s, there was a brief period of about 10 years where we don't have any records of any satellite tests. And it seemed that the focus on this had gone away. 
That changed in the mid-2000s when China started testing its own anti-satellite weapons in 2005. And since 2005 to now, there have been more than 20 anti-satellite tests conducted by four different countries. They include the US, Russia, China, and most recently, India, which did its first test in 2019. So what we're seeing now is a proliferation of this technology to potentially multiple other countries. And at the same time, we see lots of countries starting to increase their use of space for military applications, which raises a lot of questions about if there's a future armed conflict between countries, is space going to have a role? And the answer is probably most likely yes. Let's talk about the numbers. I mentioned that there are a lot of satellites. Do we have an estimate of how many satellites are aloft at this moment and who owns them and what they are purposed for at this point? We do. There are multiple organizations, including the U.S. military, that that track things in space. And that includes both active satellites as well as the dead space debris. At the moment, there are something on the order of 7,300 functional satellites in space. Uh, I'll just point out that number has risen dramatically in the last five years. Used to be somewhere around 2,000, 2,500, and now it's more than 7,000. And a lot of that has to do with the rise of commercial satellites and these very large constellations of commercial satellites we're seeing. So, for example, SpaceX's Starlink constellation is currently over 3,000 satellites just in that one constellation. And there's plans for tens of thousands more to be launched the next few years. As to who is doing all of that, well, the vast majority of those satellites are either U.S. government or organized and operated by U.S. companies like Starlink, as was mentioned. The biggest ones out there, the U.S. has a lot of satellites, then China and then Russia. And then there's something on the order of 70 countries that have at least one satellite in orbit or put something up. But it's really the big three, US, China, Russia, and then Europe that really sort of dominate that number of satellites. Used to be that more than half of all satellites were government owned and operated, and they're used for things like weather and remote sensing and intelligence and communications, navigation. But again, this most recent rise of commercial that has radically shifted those percentages. And you know, going into the future, we're going to see that the vast majority of satellites are commercial satellites, not government. But nevertheless, you're talking about things that are strategically important and important to human life. I mean, communication satellites, anything like GPS, you know, they're now associated with safety as a practical matter. That does seem not a single point of vulnerability, but a significant point of vulnerability that we have packed all this stuff in here. And China and Russia both saber rattled to the extent that they say they have anti-satellite capabilities right now. And they brag about that at least quarterly. It's like you don't build a car that has a single point of failure. You shouldn't build a national security structure or communication structure that has a single point of failure or vulnerability. That, that would seem to be logical. And I could say at least to some extent, this has been thought about. You know, we mentioned GPS, which is mo- one of the most ubiquitous services out there. We all use it. 
that is owned and operated by the U.S. military and has been ever since the early days. And it's primarily a military weapon system. It's supporting military activities. Of course, we've discovered that it also has a whole lot of other civil, commercial, economic benefits that have come about. It's interesting to look at the constellation because it's both resistant to some forms of attack, but also vulnerable at the same time. GPS is provided by a constellation of more than 30 satellites in orbit that are relatively far away. They're about 20,000 miles above the Earth, and they're circling around and they're beaming these radio signals to the Earth. And it's those signals that our phones and cars and everything collect and then know where we are. So because there's a whole bunch of satellites, it's actually relatively hard to destroy all those satellites and eliminate that signal. However, the signal itself is very weak. While it's hard to destroy the satellites, it's actually pretty easy to jam the signal. And unfortunately, there's both a public signal that we all use, and then there's the military signal. And while the military has gone to great lengths to harden and make the military signal resistant to jamming, spoofing, other types of things, it's actually kept the civil signal pretty vulnerable. So, so that's where a lot of the concern is. Now, it is even a little more complicated than that, in that there's multiple global navigation constellations. There's the GPS operated by the US, Galileo operated by the Europeans, GLONASS by the Russians, Beidou by the Chinese, Japan has their QZSS, the South Koreans are planning one, the Indians are planning one. And all of these actually share to some degree the civil signals that we all use. So there's also some additional redundancy in that. But but you're right in that the signal startup side of things is a potential area of vulnerability. And this is the the concern about these systems in general. Historically, a lot of the U.S. national security satellite systems have relied on really big, expensive satellites that are hard to build and hard to replace, that they provide some really exquisite capabilities, but they're also, in some cases, vulnerable to attack. And this has been a matter of debate for at least a decade in national security space circles. Yeah, I mean, it it strikes me as one of those things where we get excited about something, we launch a satellite, and we don't think of potential secondary and tertiary consequences, or if we do, we're not willing to make those investments because Congress holds the purse, they got to run every two years, they have to make money, and they have to try to please people who they have not educated on the importance of these things, and they'd like to keep it that way, I guess. There is a, there's a little bit of that, but more so these programs, a lot of the NASCAR stuff, we're talking 10, 15 years from conception to something in space. And that's not very agile in response to change. And there's been a lot of changes the last several years. That's fair. And, and I, I want to make a quip about what would happen if men had to start asking for directions again <laughs> and how that could collapse society altogether and create a new column of incels that we would then have to deal with. Let's move on to something more serious, because it's very hard for me to be serious for any length of time, especially when talking about weighty topics, because I find it a little bit easier to inject some humor. But it's not funny because we're talking about a single point of vulnerability. And I want you to educate our listeners a little bit about how satellite technology was used to create a black zone or a black period of time in the run-up to the Ukraine conflict. The Russians did something to satellites. Why don't you talk a little bit about what happened since we're on the topic of single points of vulnerability and means by which satellites could be targeted? As I mentioned earlier, there's been this natural use of satellites. What has changed now is 
the increased commercial nature of space and countries using commercial satellite systems to augment national security, or in some cases where they don't have their own, they're buying international commercial services. And this is the case in Ukraine. The day of the renewed invasion last February, there was a commercial satellite operator, Viasat, that experienced a significant outage. Customers all over Europe were, were reporting problems accessing the service. Turns out they were the target of a cyber attack. An, an entity you know, broke into their network, pushed out a malicious version of software that turned all of their modems across Europe into bricks. We're talking thousands of devices. So the satellites were still perfectly fine and, and broadcasting their signals. But all of these terminals that customers used across Europe to receive those signals and actually do something with them, actually you know, use them for communication purposes, ended up being useless. And after the fact, it turns out that this attack was done by Russia. It's been publicly attributed by both the US and the UK. And it appears it was done because the Ukrainian government and military was one of the customers of this commercial satellite service. And for whatever reason, or they couldn't just target those terminals, the Russians you know, attacked all of the ones in Europe. That is a pretty significant event. And as far as, you know, as I can tell, it was perhaps the first directed attack at a commercial satellite service during an armed conflict. And, and since then, we've seen some further indications of attacks or at least attempts to attack some of the commercial satellite services that are being used in the Ukrainian conflict. And do you feel comfortable talking about any of those additional attempts? Yes. You know, the Ukrainians don't have a lot of satellite capabilities of their own. They are leveraging a host of commercial capabilities, both communication services uh, like Viasat that we just talked about, but also remote imagery collection. So, you know, using commercial satellites to collect imagery. And they're being supported in this by, you know, by multiple countries, including the United States and a lot of European countries. These services, these, these communication, this imagery is being used by Ukraine to help plan and wage their resistance against the Russian invasion. And there are multiple open source reports of Russia trying to at least degrade or potentially deny some of these services. So, for example, SpaceX, which operates the Starlink constellation of several thousand satellites that provides broadband communications, has reported that you know they've seen many, many almost kind of ongoing electronic warfare jamming attacks against their service, uh, presumably conducted by Russia in the area of, of Ukraine where the conflict is happening. They've also talked about experiencing cyber attacks, again, probably coming from Russian actors directed at their service. We've not seen destructive attacks against the satellites themselves, but there's plenty of evidence of electronic warfare, jamming, cyber attacks being directed at these services. There's another single point of vulnerability I hear in what you're saying, and that is that uh, Starlink is headed by Elon Musk, who's had a very bad day in court over the last week. So, uh, you know, that's a little concerning too. Let's talk a little bit about Secure World Foundation because it seems a bit unique. Why don't you talk a little bit about what it is and what the remit is of Secure World? We are a private foundation, technically called an operating foundation. Our focus is helping ensure the long-term sustainable use of space for benefits on Earth. 
And we break that down to kind of the two parts. One is the in-space part. And as you heard from my bio, we deal with a lot of issues around space debris, tracking things in space, space traffic management, how we do regulation and oversight of space activities, uh, and also trying to mitigate or in some cases prevent conflict on Earth from extending into space and looking at the potential implications of that for sustainability. We also have some other programs that are aimed at how we can better leverage space capabilities and use space to make life better here on Earth. Everything from socioeconomic development to you know, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, monitoring the climate, weather, natural disasters. There's a whole host of, of different space applications. We're roughly 15 people split between our headquarters in Colorado, where our founders are, and then we have an office in Washington, D.C., which is where I reside. Now, let's talk for a minute. You co-authored an article which appeared in Scientific American. It leads me to a question. So once you've talked about Secure World, I feel like the next thing that we should talk about is this idea of space as sort of this lawless frontier. Lawyers in national security often have policy minds, and they want to know what is possible in terms of international agreements. They look right now, everybody in Washington and London and frankly, all developed rule of law nations are gazing out at the present conflict and what we're seeing occur in the world and wondering if it's even possible to create a situation in which hostile nations come to the table and agree on anything. But what do you see as as points of possible agreement that could mitigate any threat? So the article you're referring to is one that a colleague and I wrote shortly after one of those recent ANA satellite tests. And it calls on the countries that have tested ANA satellite weapons, US, Russia, China, and India, to forswear further testing and to work together with other countries to put in place legally binding agreements that prohibit further tests. The reason we did that is because when you test one of these ANA satellite weapons, you're destroying a satellite and that is turning one object into thousands and tens of thousands of small objects we call space debris. And that has a very deleterious effect on the space environment and everybody up there. You know, you occasionally see news reports about the International Space Station. They had to maneuver it to avoid a close approach to the piece of debris. Or in some cases, the warnings of a close approach came too late and the astronauts all had to pile into one of their emergency spacecraft. They just kind of wait for the situation to pass and, and hope they don't get whacked. You're seeing commercial constellations having to do hundreds, and in some cases, Starlink, thousands of maneuvers to avoid pieces of debris from recent ANA satellite tests. This is all what I would consider to be sort of, you know, consequences from these tests that are just not, they should not be allowed in international behavior. At the moment, and satellite testing is perfectly legal. There, there's nothing in, in the existing body of international law that says you can't do it. And so we think that there should be a movement towards putting a ban on it. There actually has been in the last year and a half an international movement towards this. At the end of 2021, a resolution supported by the United States and a whole lot of other countries passed the UN General Assembly and it created what's called a open-ended working group on space threats. And that has been meeting, it met twice in 2020, it's going to meet twice in 2023. It is a chance for countries to come together, talk about what they feel 
amount to the most serious threats to space activities in the space environment and propose ideas for what should be done about it. Last year, in the lead up to one of these meetings, Vice President Harris announced on behalf of the United States that the United States was putting in place a moratorium on further testing. And that was followed by now nine additional countries that have publicly signaled their support for these kind of voluntary moratoriums. There has been some discussion of maybe taking further steps than that uh, in this open-ended working group, but that's a long ways to go for the international community. Uh, We'd have to think about things like verification protocols and specific definitions. But I can say that there seems to be growing support among many countries that, at least when it comes to this destructive testing that creates orbital debris, that's probably the the low-hanging fruit that we all should be able to agree wasn't or should not be done. Just like we were all able to agree that testing nuclear weapons in the atmosphere should not be done because it creates this sort of environmental damage that impacts everybody. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Among the nations who agreed in principle that there should not be that kind of anti-satellite testing, were any of them that are currently considered threats, Russia, North Korea, China, did any of them step up and say that they would participate? No, they have not. And, And a lot of that has to do with geopolitics. For the last 15 years, Russia and China have been pushing a new international treaty that bans the placement of all weapons in outer space. And if you read between the lines, that is designed to undermine a potential future space-based missile defense program, sort of like what President Reagan tried to do back in the 1980s, because that is a serious concern for them. They're worried that something like that might undermine their nuclear deterrent and thus jeopardize their sovereignty. At the same time, both countries have been developing ground-based anti-satellite weapons, as we've talked about, that could be used as a hedge against some kind of a program. So for the moment, they have not. But, you know, I don't think that's something that we should say, you know, hey, they're going to go do bad things and destroy the space environment. We should go ahead and do so, too. Right? I think there's a chance here for the United States to to kind of make a case here for what is responsible and and move in that direction. Again, we were able to do this with nuclear weapons and we were able to get them to agree. I think there's a possibility we can do so here. What I find interesting is the U.S. proposed a resolution just at the end of uh, 2022 to the U.N. General Assembly calling for support of these voluntary moratoriums. It passed overwhelmingly. There was only like nine countries that voted against it. And, and, inter- and countries like India uh, abstained, which I think was interesting. So there appears to be kind of growing support for this. Of course, the devil's in the details, and there's a long path between something that is a voluntary statement and something that it becomes legally binding down the road. Well, that and I think history has shown, though, that once an autocratic leader digs in and obviously you have President Xi, for example, who's on his third forever and probably will will be on his fourth, fifth, sixth until he absolutely dies in office term that they're less likely to agree to these kinds of things. And it's usually new leadership that is willing to take that up. So I certainly hope so. And I do believe that the arc of history bends in the direction of justice and hopefully something will come of it. But I I think it must be interesting to be negotiating this on behalf of the United States and looking out at the current conflict and wondering if anybody acts in good faith presently from Russia. And certainly there's the specter of China has stated it's its goal within the next 50 years to be the dominant military power globally. And it has a plan for that. 
And so you do have to wonder, you know, who would be operating in good faith, I guess. Yeah, and I think the other consideration here is why develop these weapon test weapons in the first place? They're really only useful against an adversary that has a small number of highly valuable satellites that can't be easily replaced. There's only one country that really has that, <laughs> and that would be the United States. And it's only because despite talking about it for 15 years, we haven't really done anything to change that situation and make our own systems more resilient. There's actually a National Security Space Strategy issued in January 2011 that says, co-signed by Secretary of Defense and the DNI, saying we will make our satellite capabilities more resilient to attack by moving to distributed systems. We're still struggling to do that. So I think the other, the other issue is, what is the purpose? What is the value of these? There's a qu one question being asked in the context of Ukraine. Russia has an anti-satellite capability. They demonstrated publicly in November 2021. Why haven't they used that against all these commercial satellite constellations that are being used against them? The answer is it wouldn't do any good. Taking out one or two or even a couple of dozen satellites of thousands is not going to have a meaningful effect on their use. But at the same time, it's going to create a whole mess of debris that is going to threaten the Russians on the space station and may bring additional countries into the conflict on the side of, of Ukraine. So there's lessening military utility and growing political impact. So I think at some point relatively soon, the calculus is going to be that it's just not worth having these these weapons, and these capabilities, and then that'll make it even easier for countries to say, you know what, the metals let's not do it anymore. Well, once they decide something isn't helpful or useful, then they may agree. <laughs> That's right. I hope that's true. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you talking to us today. And uh, I hope that we get to talk to you again in the future. And I hope it's on a happy note and that we're not thinking about the empire and its threats. So I uh, thank you very much and uh, good luck to you and all of your work, Brian. We hope to have you back one day soon. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. May the force be with you, sir. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. <laughs> you can. I'm waiting. We're all good here. It's all no, good. No, no, no. <laughs> Okay, our guest tonight has been Dr. Brian Whedon of the Secure World Foundation. Thanks for listening and tuning in to NSLT tonight. Be sure to share this episode with a friend. And why don't you talk about the future of space conflict, the Secure World Foundation, and what jobs might be out there in the future in the area of counter-satellite work, national security work pertaining to space law, because my guess is there will be a lot of them in the next 10 years. Remember to send us combat comments and feedback you can do it on Twitter while Twitter is still up and standing. Or you can reach us at, at ABA NatSec, at least for now, or you could email us directly. Remember the email? It's kind of an old thing. You can reach us at national security at AmericanBar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.